religious and spiritual identity and secular identity is part of our identity. Um, and so as we talk about intersectionality, this is among the intersections um, that uh, if we uh, uh, connected to, to racial identity, um, I mentioned to you the experience of Islamophobia. Well, you don't have to identify with the religion of, of Islam to be subject to Islamophobia, which is, you know, essentially a form of racism. your host, Heather Shea. Today on the podcast, we are discussing the climate for equity on college campuses with several folks whose work lies at the intersection of religion, secularism, and spirituality. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at our website, studentaffairsnow.com, or on any of the social media channels. Today's episode is sponsored by EverFi, the trusted partner for over 1,500 colleges and universities. EverFi is a standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. This episode is also sponsored by Leadershape. Go to leadershape.org to learn how they can work with you to create a just, caring, and thriving world. As I mentioned, I am your host, Heather Shea. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I am broadcasting from East Lansing, Michigan, near the campus of Michigan State University. MSU occupies the ancestral homelands of the Anishinaabe, Three Fires Confederacy of Ojibwe, Ottawa, and Potawatomi peoples. I am so thrilled to have the, these four individuals sharing space with me today. Let me put them all on the screen here. Um, and I am so grateful for your time. And each of you brings a really interesting and unique vantage point in this movement for equity. So joining me today are Dr. Amer Ahmed, uh, Vice Provost for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at the University of Ma Vermont. Welcome. Also, Christopher Stone Sawalish, Associate Director for Residence Education, here with me at Michigan State University. Hi, Chris. Dr. Cody Nielsen, Director for the Center for Spirituality and Social Justice at Dickinson College. And Dr. Jenny L. Small, Visiting Assistant Professor at Salem State University. So welcome to the four of you. Thank you so much. As each of you introduce yourselves to our listeners um, and viewers today, could you please share briefly about your interest in and work around this topic. Um, and we're going to start with Cody. Well, thank you, Heather. And thanks for the invitation to be a part of this and to all of you listeners out here today who've given a, a chance to, to hear and come to this uh, podcast and uh, spend some time with us. Uh, my name is Cody Nielsen, um, and I use he, him, and his pronouns um, I'm coming to you from Carlisle, Pennsylvania, on the unceded lands of the Susquehannock Nation. Um, Dickinson College, where I work, is also um, has a very uh, troubling history. Um, we are the uh, location of the first um, Indian Industrial School in America, and so we are continuously working to dismantle our long system, our long-standing systems of colonialism. Um, my work in this topic um, is really driven um, by a call toward equity that I have figured out in the last 15 years of my professional career um, around this area of religious, secular, and spiritual identities. Uh, first at my time um, at other institutions at the University of Minnesota, and is really tied toward institutional policies and practices. So my dissertation work um, on this topic um, looked at institutional policies and practices at Penn State, where the largest multi-faith center at a public institution of higher learning in North America exists. Um, and I mostly focus at this point on both U.S. and Canadian um, policies and practices. Thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Heather, and hi, everyone. Um, thanks for having me today. I'm Jenny Small. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and I'm a visiting assistant professor at Salem State University. I'm joining today from my location in Needham, Massachusetts. Um, I want to acknowledge that the land I, lived on, I live on has long served as a site of meeting and exchange among a number of indigenous peoples, specifically the Massachusetts, Pawtucket, and Wampanoag tribes. The Mash 
P. Wampanoag tribe, also known as the people of the first light, has inhabited present-day Massachusetts and eastern Rhode Island for more than 12,000 years. After an arduous process lasting more than three decades, the Mashpee Wampanoag were recently re-acknowledged as a federally recognized tribe um, in 2007. Um, as for my work, I've been interested in this topic for over 20 years, since I was first introduced as a master's student to the concept of faith development theory, which I realized very quickly was extremely Christian-centric. I've been researching and writing about college students' religious, secular, and spiritual identities since then. And recently, I have turned to developing a critical lens um, that addresses the impact of white Christian supremacy. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jenny. I'm glad that you're here with us. Amir, welcome. Thank you. And um, I use he, him pronouns. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I am on the land of the Nanotuck people. I want to acknowledge them uh, here in Western Massachusetts, where I currently reside. I want to acknowledge Native people in each of the four directions in relationship to me, and also acknowledge the University of Vermont sits on Abenaki land. Uh, as a person who is identifiably Muslim uh, from my name, uh, it, uh, religious and spiritual identity has been a pretty significant component of my human experience in the United States, um, including uh, the realities of that experience, both pre and post 9-11, which are two fundamentally different experiences in the United States. Um, and as a person who works on diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, more broadly, to be honest, I don't really have a choice as to whether or not I can, uh, I don't, it's not a, it's a, it's not a luxury for me. I, I, I have no choice as to whether or not I think or consider the role of religion and spirituality um, as related to broader issues of diversity, equity, inclusion. It is uh, central to my experience individually, but it's also central to my experience in understanding and engaging so many different kinds of human beings that I've been fortunate enough and blessed to have engaged in the work. Thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. That's a great point. We're going to unpack that for sure. Christopher, welcome. Thank you so much. Like Heather, I'm coming from East Lansing, Michigan, and I'm thankful for uh, Heather's land acknowledgement. And I'm also reminded of the land grant history of our institution and just how much work there is to be done there and the problematic nature of that very term land grant and the discussions that we have. Um, I came to this work first and foremost as an undergraduate student searching for meaning themselves and trying to understand uh, what my place was and where I fit and was fortunate to come across some faculty members in the psychology department that were really interested in the concept of the psychology of religion. And I tried to answer some big questions as a confused student around what did it mean for those students that were identifying with faith groups? And what did it mean for those students that were identifying outside of those socially? And my work there brought me into doing additional work on domestic terrorism and the ties back into Christian identity theology that is incredibly problematic and frightening that we're seeing today, the outgrowth of that in many of the white supremacist movements. And to watch that come to fruition is a truly scary thing. And so much of the work we have to do around these identities is truly rooted in the safety of so many and our willingness to have difficult conversations. You know, as somebody who identifies as secular, I've spent much of my life having to explain to folks that I still do have values. I still do believe things. I still do have a connection to those things that I believe in which are right and wrong. And I know that there's a lot of other secular students out there actively trying to have that conversation. So I seek to engage all of those things through a critical lens while making sure to check my identities and my privilege. And I'm deeply thankful to be a part of this conversation. I want to also acknowledge, Chris, that this was a conversation he brought to me probably, I don't know, two plus years ago, um, back when we were hosting podcasts on Student Affairs Live. So thanks, Chris, for sticking with us. So we finally get this conversation, needed conversation on the air. Um, so let's talk a little bit about definitions. As I often start the podcast, uh, what do we mean by religious, secular, and spiritual identities? Cody, can you give us that kind of primer? Yeah, um, 
Thank you. And, and thanks all the colleagues as you've sort of responded to this first question and introduction, because I feel like it will really help respond to this question. So um, for those of you who sort of the first time you're hearing this term, religious, secular, and spiritual identity, this is a sort of nomenclature that has come um, over the last uh, six years um, into the field more broadly. Um, you have likely heard the term interfaith before. Um, I'll talk a little bit about the term interfaith and how uh, the term interfaith is somewhat problematic. Um, but the term religious, secular, and spiritual identities is now, um, is now bound into the, the Council on the Advancement of Standards, the CAS standards, if you will, um, that were reorganized and redefined um, around uh, 2015 and 2016 with a group of colleagues and I. Um, we use that terminology, that nomenclature, specifically um, because it is in both alphabetical order um, in the English uh, in the English language, and because we are trying to promote a, an understanding of equity, um, religion cannot be the dominant uh, force on college campuses without a space for secularism to exist. And so, too, um, the need for us to have spiritual identities that are beyond the scope of religious um, religious traditions, specifically, to give space for people to to. Um, move fluidly um, through different forms of spirituality, through different forms of secularism, to be both atheist, agnostic, humanist, skeptic, free thinkers, the many different words that we can use for any of these. So religious, secular, and spiritual identity is, is, a, is a very specific um, and important way in which we sort of define the, the field right now. Um, the uh, other piece of that that I think my colleagues really have built really well here is is specifically naming um, why we don't use the term interfaith. And the term interfaith um, has been used um, traditionally over the last 125 years. Um, it was coined at the 1896 Parliament of the World's Religions. Um, it has been defined by many religious traditions, most specifically and most recently, the Roman Catholic Church, as a language that is used to define um, the Abrahamic tradition. So, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, and the relations, if you will, interfaith dialogue, interfaith relations between them. Um, the use of that term interfaith is often, though, equated, if you look deeply in terms of the practices of it, as further uh, as further iterations of Christian privilege and Christian supremacy, because it drives from a notion that Christianity has built and constructed a way in which to bring other players to the table. And when the Roman Catholic Church has named it as being between Jews and Muslims, they have predetermined who is included in the table and then themselves have made exclusive East and South Asian traditions from being included in this as well as, as preventing secular and non-religious traditions from being included. Now, we've tried to make some changes over the time to this, but I would say that deep down the roots of it remain. And that all stems back from our sort of 384-year history in higher education back to the creation of Harvard in 1636. Um, anyone who says back to us um, in this field that we work in a secular field forgets that um, we have Christmas and Easter, and they're on specific days that align with the Western Christian calendar, and that no one has ever questioned those days as being off, as being days that people have the quote-unquote right to be off. And so that academic calendar really is built around a Christian-centric um, realm known as the Gregorian calendar. Um, and it's interesting because we often say that um, we're seeing such a dynamic shift in higher education or in American culture or U.S. culture because people are becoming more secular. There's less religion. But we don't really know that in higher education because we don't actually measure the data of our students on campus. We carte blanche say most people are not religious, but we don't actually take the time and the energy to actually ask them what they are. And data is actually contradictory to the sort of pedestrian nature that we're saying is secular. And instead, religion is becoming more complex 
and more diverse on our college campuses, which all lead back to both our definition of using religious, secular, and spiritual identities, but also the imperative of this work to no longer deny that religious identities and secular identities are both changing and dynamic on campus instead of just a, a something of an afterthought. So let me stop there. <laughs> Anyone else want in on this conversation and, and specifically about how the identities that students bring kind of interact with each other as well as with administration? Um, what have you observed um, within, within your spheres? Well, I think the experiences of, of certain um, identities are often invisibilized in uh, the way these systems function and operate. And I'll just give an example. Um, when I worked at University of Michigan, um, in order to be able to take the day off for my holiday, um, I ha would have to make a request six months in advance to, to HR to get a floating holiday, which are the days between Christmas and New Year's, applied for my for my holiday the problem is that because we use a lunar calendar we don't know exactly which day it's going to fall on it's usually one of two days um and so and then i have to would have had to create a rationale write out a rationale for what i was going to do for that floating holiday uh that that i'm using because the university is closed on those days so I would have to explain what I would be working on on that day between Christmas and New Year. Um, so as a result, I would just not do it. So de facto, I just wouldn't get my holiday. And so the, that's like my version, my personal version of just all the different iterations of things students navigate, uh, like access to food during Ramadan or, um, you know, a lot of other kinds of experiences that various uh, uh, identity groups experience. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, both what you and Cody are talking about is really this idea that he named, you know, as Christian privilege and that's campus systems and academic calendar being built around that. Um, and yet we know we have many religious identities um, on our college campuses based on our domestic student population, our international student population. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of complexity there. And then you add in atheism and agnosticism. Um, Chris, you spoke about identifying earlier as secular. Can you talk a little bit about how this plays into interfaith conversations on campus when people don't consider atheism or agnosticism to be a, a faith, I guess? in the sense that Cody was naming. No, and it's a great question because, you know, as a part of the secular community, those weren't conversations I've ever been invited to because there's no interfaith nature for those folks to say, well, gosh, you're not of faith. Therefore, you don't have space in the interfaith conversation. Um, it's interesting because atheism has this tendency to feel combative on its surface. And I think it's also really important to acknowledge atheists often skew towards majority identities like white cisgendered men. So as we begin to layer this, the conversation needs to be nuanced. I'm able to freely hide my secularism. It's not something I need to bring up in conversation. And when you live in areas that are potentially um, heavily Christian, or in this case, I'm in an area that's heavily Catholic, I can avoid the conversation and engage in certain traditions, right? And it's simply an afterthought. I think it's important for the atheist community to acknowledge that they can do that. Um, you know, I think to discuss being secular is to really broaden that definition and create a more inclusive community because atheism is so often viewed as a negative reaction to faith communities. It doesn't get included. And that makes sense to me to a certain degree, right? is, well, gosh, if, if the nature of this person's identity is an intentional negative reaction towards mine, why would I include them? And that's why, for me, it's about secularism. It's about space for everyone. You know, Cody touched on this. The most important movement really regarding these secular identities is acknowledging students are coming to campus with no religious affiliation at higher rates than ever before. And that's something that often gets termed as agnosticism, but I think that's limiting because that student's experience and the relationship they may or may not have with their faith is so much more than how we label those things. So I think the secular community is being wise and moving away from utilizing some of those terms and, and really focusing on being secular. Um, but again, it's, update, it's upending these traditional interfaith systems that were designed without the secular in mind. 
often because it wasn't acknowledged we exist because it was a cultural taboo to even acknowledge that the secular community existed. It's the thing that folks didn't talk about. Um, and that's rooted in this idea for some of, well, gosh, how could you have a meaningful value system? Um, what would that, how would you be able to define right and wrong? What does that look like? So I think, you know, secular identities are a part of this larger fabric of the campus conversation around values, because that's a lot of what we're talking about. Um, the honest discussion about what influences our world and the decisions we make every day. Why did you make that decision? What does your inner voice say and where does it come from? You know, to be secular is not to be without that compass, but we need to be actively engaging all students in all settings, programmatic, student conduct, classrooms, employment, in these discussions about their values. And we can't keep being afraid to talk about it. There's this old internal adage of, oh gosh, I'm at a state school, so I can't talk about religion. And that's absurd because what that does is not only is that socially constructed, it's socially constructed to stop us from having this conversation about religion and politics and values and what's important to us. And because we haven't been taught to have that conversation, we continue to exist in this nebulous space. Um, so how are we going to learn to have it if we're told it's socially inappropriate to bring it up? And those are the things I ask myself often is when's the appropriate time to talk about it? Um, and, you know, folks would say, well, gosh, it's never appropriate to talk about it. So we're refusing to talk about our values. And that's a really difficult place for us to put ourselves, especially when we claim to be doing that with college students. We claim that that's a really important thing we talk about. That's a fascinating point. And I, I am really kind of struck by that because I think some of the failures um, have really been this idea that public institutions, separation of church and state, like we no longer can have conversations, but as you raise, like, what do we then, where do we then have these conversations? Um, Jenny, talk with us a little bit about the kind of just the measurement in general. And, you know, as a researcher, how do you, how do you identify the demographics um, in general? Yeah, I wanted to jump in on what um, Chris and Cody were both talking about regarding like the sort of current presence of who was on campus and and Cody's reflection like, well, we don't know exactly. And and Chris's statement, well, there are more secular students, but actually like we we don't really know that there are more necessarily. And I think part of the problem is that we have tried to do a better measurement. We we've tried to move away of, of saying sort of, you know, are you you know, Christian, atheist, or, or other, you know, like there used to be really ridiculous categories, your choices were Catholic, Protestant, or other, right? Obviously, we are way beyond that. And I think in terms of measuring secular students, we've gotten a better with having categories that are sort of like none, like you, you might have heard of the phrase, the rise of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N, can get tricky when you're talking about religion. Um, but <laughs> The category of none is still not very descriptive because as Chris describes his identity as a secular individual, that is not the same as other people's identities, secular individuals. And the, the tricky thing is when you mix in this question of, of privilege, as he, as he noted, you know, a lot of white cisgender straight men identifying as atheists, there is a question of sort of, um, how people are acculturated. So were these people who identify now as atheists, were they raised in atheist families? Were they raised in Christian families? Um, or were they raised sort of with nothing but in a Christian society? When you, when you layer on Christian privilege or white Christian privilege, often you see that people who identify as none actually are quite privileged in terms of their identity. So they're not going to have the experience, you know, Amr saying of, well, I, I can't observe my holiday because their holiday is probably still Christmas or, you know, I'm not everyone for sure, but a majority. And so they're still not, you know, marginalized in the way that somebody who identifies with a minority religion in this country is. So the demographics are, I would say, if you want to know the breakdown of the different Christian denominations on our campus, like you can really easily get that from the SERP or um, something like that, because there will be 12 different Christian choices. There is one Jewish choice, one Muslim choice, Hindu, Buddhist, and then there's usually, you know, none and other. So, 
smaller traditions or not represented, represented indigenous traditions, African or Caribbean traditions, those are all filed in other and nobody is breaking down how people were raised and so how much privilege they're bringing with them on campus. A long way of saying, I don't know, and we could do better, um, but that's sort of where we are right now. This is fascinating. So, and I was, go ahead, Chris. No, I want to jump in on that because I think there's an interesting generational piece there that definitely resonates with me as somebody who often has checked the nun box. You know, it's, I think it's easy to assume none is to be secular. And I think what you just made was a really important point around this idea that it is an impossible thing in many ways to measure because we don't have the tools to measure it. And we don't do a good job of building those tools because we're still utilizing things that are 50, 60 years old. Um, so no, it's, it's an interesting point you make when we talk about, you know, the nuns increasing, especially generationally. Um, I do think though, for me to check that box is to check a secular box. And I think you're absolutely right for a lot of folks that might not be it because the definition and where that comes from is so different. That's a great point. Um, I think your point also about the, they're probably still celebrating Christmas. They're celebrating the Santa Claus version of Christmas versus, you know, the religious version of Christmas. Um, Amir, can you, I, I think one of the things that's complex about this conversation is I think it has largely been left out of conversations around um, DEI and diversity, equity, and inclusion on our campuses. And you, in your intro, really spoke to why that's just not possible um, for you in particular. But when we think about larger conversations that are happening, ongoing around racial justice and decolonization, um, both on our campuses, in our professional associations, you know, how, how can we as student affairs practitioners really bring all of these concepts together if we're talking about students' identities? Yeah, thank you for that. And, you know, religious and spiritual identity and secular identity is part of our identity. Um, and so as we talk about intersectionality, this is among the intersections um, that uh, if we uh, uh, connected to, to racial identity, um, I mentioned to you the experience of Islamophobia. Well, you don't have to identify with the religion of, of Islam to be subject to Islamophobia, which is you know, essentially a form of racism, you know, that you can be Sikh, you could be Hindu, you could be Arab Christian, you could be Latinx and be perceived as Arab um, and experience Islamophobia and the, the behaviors and the impact of Islamophobia, right? Then there's specific experiences like my, myself where I'm identifiably Muslim because of, because of my name, irrespective of my own spiritual journey and the relevance of that, it doesn't matter. Um, that I'm, I'm going to have a set of experiences. I'm going to uh, get profiled in a certain way. Um, those things are going to happen uh, because of uh, the way I show up. And so for us to have the conversation and just act, act like that's not part of the mix of how diversity, equity, inclusion uh, functions and operates in reality um, is just a rejection, a rejection of a huge portion of reality. Um, and then another piece um, is, and, and before I, I get into this, I, I want to say that I 100% agreed with everything that uh, Christopher and, and, and Jenny shared. And at the same time, when we think about the, um, the, the secular identity being skewing cis white male, um, you know, we have to get at some of the hostility that exists towards uh, spirituality and faith traditions um, that exists in the academic space uh, and framing religious and spirituality as intellectually weak. Um, and oftentimes as uh, making declarative statements about religion that are actually about post-Constantinian Christianity and, um, and saying that, you know, all religions teach one true way and X, Y, and Z. Uh, and then, uh, and then once we frame uh, religion and spirituality as intellectually weak and basically make it not worthy of of intellectual inquiry, which is something that I experience in my own academic research and dissertation process, my research is partially about Islam and Black America as related to hip hop, uh, and was heavily pushed back on having a religious identity component in that in, into that um, academic inquiry, but um, but I. But I think one thing that we never say, right, is that these 
predominantly white men who say that it's intellectually weak uh, to engage spirituality. What, what the subtext of what is not said is that we're basically dismissing all indigenous people in the process, which most of those individuals would not want to be perceived as being dismissive of all indigenous people uh, in that process. But there is almost, it is almost impossible to acknowledge the holistic experience uh, realities uh, of experiences and, uh, and, and self-understanding of most indigenous people on this planet if you segment out religious and spiritual identity. It's almost impossible. Um, and so what does that create, what kind of environment does that create in the academic arena when we basically say that it's intellectually weak? And in the process, it perpetuates the notion that all science, because that's all connected to it, all science is produced by white European people, you know, and therefore we don't have to look at, oh, Islamic civilizations created the foundations of a lot of, of science and mathematics and so forth and so on, which essentially um, inherited by Europe and then acted like that didn't happen, right? And so uh, there's all these seeds of white supremacy that are embedded in, into all of these elements of this conversation. And so when we segment religious and spiritual identity out, we're essentially um, uh, letting white supremacy off the hook, <laughs> you know, of not really fully understanding the way particularly white Christian supremacy functions and operates uh, in our systems. Yeah, I, I, I want to just add to that just briefly. Sorry if there's feedback there, but I really appreciate what you're saying there, uh, Amir, with, with the sort of intellectual weakness, but also want to sort of highlight and illuminate something that is under the, that is sort of under the cuff when we talk about things as being intellectualizing religion. And that is that religion um, in a sort of Western landscape is often appropriated as being a choice. And if we look at East and South Asian traditions, there is a lack of choice that is embedded if you look at certain communities and cultures. Hinduism in India is deeply tied with one another. And not to say that every Indian uh, or, or, or native Indian is, of course, Hindu. But I think oftentimes when we put it into the classroom context of intellectualizing it, of like, this is your choice of your belief and practice systems, sometimes we forget the fact that people are so deeply tied to that experience because of the cultures that they are built around, sometimes seeking to escape it, and sometimes just that this is part of their identity so deeply embedded that it's not about an intellectual practice. It is, a, it is just a true way in which they, they have lived throughout their entire lives. So that's enough. And, it, and it eliminates certain types of inquiry epistemologically. Like if we operate yes. with the science versus religion debate, we don't have a way of explaining how did Islamic civilizations advance mathematics, science, astronomy in the manner that they did? Why? Because epistemologically, it was about the about not fully understanding the creator. So therefore, inquiry into greater understanding uh, the, the material world in order to, to understand the immaculate design of the universe. Right. This is a different epistemological orientation around science from how it's framed in the Western Academy, right? And so as a result, we, we can't even see that this is the water that we're swimming in and the ways in which white supremacy and colonialism end up getting reinforced uh, in the process. Jenny, you made um, mention, I'm gonna uh, switch to hear you for just a moment. You made mention earlier about critical religious pluralism. Um, as a as a theory you're picking up on, and I'm thinking about all of this conversation as as kind of a an interesting layer upon that. Um, you know, what? How do we know? What are multiple ways of knowing? And when I think about epistemology, I kind of go back to that idea of you know we need to be critical about the, the way in which our institutions are um, promoting one specific way of learning and inquiry. Can you talk a little bit about your work around this area and your research? Yeah. I mean, some of how it started really related to this question of how people um, perceive you, you know, um, it's, you know, talking about Islamophobia as, you know, based on your, your skin color, your name, maybe your religious practice, but maybe not um, for the, for many years, probably, you know, 15 years or so um, when 
spirituality became a topic that was a little safer to study in higher education. It became a deep study of beliefs and values and, and practices. So um, essentially, mostly people's internal structures of meaning making and then how they acted or didn't act upon those beliefs during the college years. It did not at all touch on the question of what happens to you based on how other people see you and treat you. Um, essentially, like we're talking about the college campus experience right now, forget the whole of society, but looking at the microcosm of college campus. So, you know, I kept coming back to the question of, well, why does it really matter what a Muslim student believes or doesn't believe that doesn't change their impact, uh, the impact upon them of Islamophobia or you know, structural racism or microaggressions or any of the things that happen to Muslim students during college. So I started looking for and then eventually creating a critical theory to examine these questions. And I modeled it intentionally on critical race theory and LATCRIT, which is Latino, Latina critical theory. Um, LATCRIT actually is you know, in my deep study of all existing critical theories, I found that LATCRIT was actually one that did was a rare one that did look at religion as a piece. And it had, the reason is the deep cultural connection between Latinx identity and Catholicism. Not to say that all Latinx individuals are Catholic, but people believe that they are. And there is a strong cultural influence even with Latinx people who don't identify as Catholic. And so I use these as a model to question things like campus policies, research that we're doing in student affairs, our practices as student affairs practitioners and faculty members to say, you know, how are people differently being treated and existing in the world based on their religious, secular, and spiritual identities? But really it's looking at, you know, who are the privileged, um, the typically white Christians, and who is who are not privileged, who's being marginalized and oppressed. And so you know, I was able to look at lots of different practices on campus. Um, and also I looked at this question, you know, back from the beginning of this podcast about the interfaith, you know, is interfaith a good enough model to address privilege and marginalization along religious lines? And I would say that no, it is not um, for multiple reasons. One of which is that um, it doesn't look at oppression. It looks at individual people and sometimes groups, communities, um, through houses of worship or student clubs, getting along better, doing things together to make positive change in society, but it doesn't touch the structural pieces at all. Um, It also only touches those who choose to opt in um, and, or who are invited in. And so, um, and so I, um, so I've moved towards a critical framework, just as we have with looking at um, race, especially, uh, because I just don't think the old models of meaning-making and interfaith relations are, are cutting in anymore. No, thank you for, thank you for talking about that. Cause I think that's a really important point. And I think when we put that labor upon students and in those interfaith spaces to work together and build coalitions, you know, we're, as you said, not addressing the structures that, that are at their heart. Um, so Chris, I want to switch to talking about practitioners. So many of our viewers of Student Affairs Now um, play a really specific role in supporting students' identities, whether they're in housing or campus activities or leadership development programs or fraternity and sorority life. Um, can you talk about what role student affairs and academic affairs needs to play in supporting religious, secular, and spiritual identities, and particularly maybe housing, right? Since you're 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 the practitioner from housing on our on our podcast today. You know, I think there's really uh, three key areas that all administrative units, so those are academic and student affairs units, can immediately focus on. It becomes really easy for folks to say, well, next year when we calendar, we're going to keep these things in mind, or next time we're going to keep these things in mind for training. Or you know what? I have an idea. We're going to have Cody come into RA training, and he can just talk about all of this, and then it's going to be fine. Um, it, It moves well beyond that into really looking at Things like, you know, first and foremost, calendars and finance. We calendar around and we spend money on the things we care the most about. You know, it's an old adage that you can tell what a university cares about based upon what it spends money on. And that is true. I also think it's it's reasonable to say you can tell what a university cares about based upon how it calendars. 
Um, you know, oftentimes those calendars are built years out, sometimes in three to five year increments, whereas some traditions can look decades into the future for key dates. There is no excuse for academic calendars and administrative calendars to have these kinds of misses. Um, you know, I really begin to think that we actively dismantle this Christian colonization of time and space by starting our planning first with the needs of our faith-based and secular communities in mind instead of reacting to them later. Um, you know, we ultimately need active reviews of our planning by members of these communities prior to dates being published and shared. And I think we make that harder than it needs to be. And we say, well, gosh, you know, how, why didn't we know? And how will we find out? Well, most of our universities have really, really capable folks in all of these areas on campus that would be more than willing to look at your calendar and more than willing to look at your practices and say, well, gosh, you might want to think about these things prior to engaging in them. And we saw that recently with the University of Wisconsin um, and their academic calendar. I think the other piece to think about is human resources. How do we manage time away? What are our hiring practices um, and work flexibility? It speaks volume to staff and in turn sets the tone for students. What we care about as employees and employers is what sets the tone for how students are going to interact with us, particularly student staff. That matters. I also think it's worth looking at structured and candid dialogue. You know, we have to be able as campus communities to discuss these things. This moves well beyond relying on, on an RA to do a program um, or leaning on campus clergy. We're talking structure, facilitated dialogue programs around our values, where they come from, and how our identities intersect. And, and these things are all possible, and these things are all done in pockets. It's ultimately on us to want to do these things in bigger ways and to ultimately want to bring folks in and compensate them for doing this as opposed to saying, well, gosh, could you, would you mind just coming giving us a hand with this incredibly identity rich, emotionally intense dialogue that's most likely going to cause harm? Well, and, and would you mind doing it from three to 4 p.m.? We have to be better than that. You know, mm -hmm. what we're seeing is really an outgrowth of, you know, religion and politics from the 1940s and 50s in the United States. And there's a really rich history there. I would encourage people to learn more about because we're seeing these things play out in really problematic ways. But again, those three areas are things we can do now. Right now, there's inevitably a residence life professional who's thinking, how am I going to structure my year and what am I putting on my operational calendar? My question is, who else are you asking that question of? You know, there's a university thinking, gosh, we need to get our next round of the academic calendar. Who are you bringing into that conversation? Um, there's human resources professionals saying, well, gosh, we really need to improve our onboarding. What an amazing opportunity for you to really onboard an employee into the kind of institution that you want to live your values and be. Yeah, I'm really thinking about um, a conversation that we just had at MSU where one of my colleagues mentioned what would happen if we centered the needs of the most marginalized students. Um, and so shout out to Oprah, uh, who, who mentioned that, not the Oprah, our own Oprah at MSU. Um, you know, because I think that that's kind of what you're speaking about is and instead of, you know, going from this majority perspective, like what if we really thought about it differently? Um, so I want to pick up on this idea about uh, campus planning. I, Chris knows uh, Michigan State just released a multi-year project, a DEI strategic plan with mention to religious holiday accommodations. Um, it is something, uh, only goes so far perhaps. Um, Amir, can you talk a little bit about the institution level policies that student affairs and, and, and you as a chief diversity officer should be considering? Yeah, well, it, it starts with, first of all, base, baseline level of resources and support, um, including resources like religious and spiritual life. Let's just start there. I, I'm fortunate I'm at my second consecutive institution that has a resource like that. My last one, Dickinson College, which is where Cody works, uh, spiritual life and social justice. My current U University of Vermont, I have a director of Interfaith Center that reports to me as part of our intersectional work of our Division of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So that sends a statement to our campus immediately mm -hmm. that, that religious and spiritual identity is a component of diversity, equity, and inclusion. It signals that to everybody, including our students, including administrators and faculty. What that allows is that as a division of diversity, equity, and inclusion that's tasked with leading out institutional uh, strategy and implementation across the institution and partnering with various schools and colleges and divisions around the institution, 
um, is to ask them to embed these components, every aspect of what we do in our division into what they do in their various areas uh, and have the conversation around how we can be a consultative force uh, and resource to work with them to develop and implement their comprehensive strategy to include religious and spiritual identity and so forth. And how do we work together uh, uh, to identify what are the what is the components of capacity building that you should be developing internally to your area of the institution, and what are the aspects uh, that we need to be delivering uh, across your areas? So, let's take uh, reflection rooms and spirit and um, and uh, prayer rooms, uh, for example, right? So. Some areas of the institution, they can prioritize, they might be in a space circumstance, but they can prioritize that relative to what they have the control over. But some may not be able to do that. So maybe that's a conversation more broadly institutionally, uh, as we think strategically around physical space, is where are some strategic locations in which we can make those kinds of spaces available for students uh, so that they are not unrealistic in, with regards to ability to access in a meaningful way as part of their daily life on campus, right? So that's just one of many aspects. And, and, that, and when I think about inclusive excellence and, uh, and, in, and implementing DEI strategy, what I try to remember, remind people is that um, is not to just think tactics, but think strategy. So how do those tactics connect to the overall strategy, right? So how do this, how does religious and spiritual life and the different components that comprises that for our students and others on campus, how does that connect to our overall DEI strategy, right? How does that connect to the ways in which we're address, address, addressing racial inequity and gender inequity and so forth and so on? That's great. And I, I love talking about it, at the system level, and then also at the individual um, action level. And so Jenny, as a, as a, as a faculty member, um, and also thinking about student affairs uh, programs, you know, how can we build this into our course policies, or how can we take action at the individual level when we teach? So for faculty and student affairs programs, specifically, um, I, I would say that there's two roles. Um, the first is to help your graduate students learn to identify and address Christian privilege. So graduates of student affairs preparatory programs should be able to identify Christian privilege just as easily as white privilege and other identity-based oppressions. Christian supremacy and structural racism go together. They develop together, they support each other and feed each other, and you can't dismantle one with the, uh, the other. So if you're talking about structural racism and the, the, you know, the crisis of Christian supremacy, but you're not looking at Christianity and how it relates to that, you're missing half of the puzzle and you're going to run into a lot of problems in the, you know, the work that you're trying to do. So um, I would love all graduate students to learn about this um, and to be prepared to identify Christian privilege, Christian supremacy, when they get onto college campuses and, you know, they're developing policies and practices or working with those that already exist. The second piece that I'd like to see, and I, and I think this is harder, is for um, faculty in our field to interrogate their own blind spots in their teaching and research. Um, it, it's really hard, especially when you're in a position of privilege, to see that privilege. And, and we, we all know that um, it's easier to understand the areas where you are marginalized and oppressed, but faculty members really cannot be doing research anymore that doesn't examine or doesn't consider the impact of Christian supremacy. It's just like, it's way too late to be um, playing catch up here. Like you should already be doing this. And um, you know, if you are, listing demographics and you and one of your demographic categories is not religious, secular, or spiritual and identity, that's that's not great. If your if your questions are about things like religious practices and you're asking like how often do you read the Bible, that's not great. Um, you know, and those are very low hanging fruit. Um, you know, there's much more sophisticated ways to um, to reduce our blind spots and research. But those, I would say, for student affairs practitioners or faculty members, those are the big things that I would like to see: examining your blind spots and teaching your graduate students to see it 
for faculty in other fields, um, you know, the, I think that the low hanging fruit is the religious accommodations, like the holiday question. Um, I would like to see campuses moving away from faculty having the, the power in those situations. Mm-hmm. But given that almost all campuses, the faculty do have the power, I would like to see um, a much different, more open faculty in every department that the default answer is, yes, of course, you can observe your holiday or your tradition um, or your family's, you know, um, ob- observance and the default answer is yes, and we will figure it out from there related to your coursework. Um, you know, if you want to ex- examine your own blind spots around religious privilege, that would be great too. <laughs> I love it. That's great. So Cody, you do this job at Dickinson College, right? So your role is really specifically in this space. Um, talk a little bit about what you do and then also what other campuses that you've researched um, in your study are doing this well. Yeah, um, thank you. And thank you, Jenny, for naming um, the power and privilege and all of us for naming that power and privilege in this because it goes directly to the question of what campuses are doing it well. So um, as you sort of alluded to, so at Dickinson College, I'm the director of the Center for Spirituality and Social Justice. I'm in our Office for Equity and Inclusivity. Um, the office that I have is, is sort of the echoes of like what it was a previous office of the chaplain um, at Dickinson College, like so many other uh, private university institutions. And, and, and there's a couple of things here that I want to speak to about um, these campuses and, and thinking about this. So the private universities that have often had chaplain's offices also have to be implicated in the sort of history of Christian privilege and a lot of Protestant Christian privilege in the midst of this. Public universities often say, oh, we can't possibly have an office that does this work because we're a secular institution or we have this uh, separation of church and state, which I will speak to what Jenny speaks of as what we call false neutral secularism, the belief that because we're a public institution, we can't possibly have this. If you look at the way in which I do my work on a college campus and the way in which uh, my colleague, Laura, who is at the University of Vermont that that Amir has the privilege of working with, does their work, our work is really around those policies, those practices, um, creating the campus climate, manufacturing and fostering the sort of training and um, outgrowth of a climate that is done through exploring and implicating our our implicit biases that that are there. In that way, any public university um, that seeks to do this work should also in many ways have offices um, that I would say parallel the work of Greek life an oversight and a support mm-hmm. that looks at this. And we spend hundreds of millions of dollars every single year on Greek life. And not to say that Greek life is all bad, but we do a lot of risk management. And admittedly, if we look at the, at the sort of history of this field of religious, secular, and spiritual identities, it could be very well argued that that multiple times over, uh, more individuals are part of some level of religious, secular, and spiritual identity than they are of Greek life, and yet we deny that this is something that we need to provide oversight and support of and strategically think about with 17 million college students and uh, millions of students on public institutions today. So my work is really designed around institutional policies, practices, and such. And I want to, before I conclude this, I want to I state something around what Jenny says about the power and the privilege within that faculty realm. We are so often focusing in this area and we are talking about what campuses do this well by looking at the ways in which campuses have empowered students to be what we call interfaith leaders. But we are not being held responsible as administrators to actually do the deep work of climate that is there. If our students are the ones who have to address and solve issues of anti-Semitism on campus, if it is our Muslim Student Association who has to do the work of overcoming Islamophobia on campus, we're not doing this well at all. Mm -hmm. And in Mm -hmm. fact, I would argue that the problem is that so few campuses across the country are even willing to say out loud Mm -hmm. that it is our responsibility. So the campuses that are doing it well, and I don't want to specifically name too many or or such, but I often look to places um, like Penn State and sometimes the University of Maryland and sometimes Rutgers University in terms of public universities. And in private universities, it's the schools that have moved 
and, and really address the fact that the chaplain's offices have been historically um, white, Christian, and privileged. So places like USC, where Varun Soni, the only Hindu dean of the, the only Hindu um, who is a dean of religious life in all of North America is. Those are the schools that I look to and I think to in terms of our work around this because they are implicating themselves and they are looking at their deep structural systems. And I think any campus that wants to claim themselves as doing well cannot pinpoint back to student interfaith engagement, but must pinpoint back to what they are doing internally to address those systems of power and privilege that Jenny and, and others have spoke to in here. And Heather, I just want to interject real quick. If we, yeah. if, if we as institutions don't do this well, there's so many manifestations of, of what's challenging, uh, again, at the intersections, um, in which we can't uh, acknowledge certain ways in which, for example, cultural appropriation happens and um, in the desire to separate religion out or spirituality out from cultural practices uh, and spiritual practices like yoga. And we can't have a conversation around the fact that that's a spiritual practice um, that is segmented out from its spiritual tradition, utilized as a, uh, and then not named and not engaged um, at, around the, the broader social justice issues related to those communities, right? Um, or mindfulness and in, in the use of contemplative pedagogy and so forth, and not naming it as Buddhism or uh, and the cultures and traditions and the experiences of colonialism of the various cultures. And, traditions uh, connected to that. So there are there are so many layers and dimensions to what we cannot get to if we don't even do the basics well. Yeah. Yeah. And who hurts, you know, who's hurt by all of that, right? And I, I bring this conversation always back to our students and um, future Dr. Stone Sawalish. I know you're research interests um, lie kind of around this idea of sense of belonging. And, you know, I think about my own incoming first year student experience, um, coming into a massive institution, trying to find a community of support, um, you know, among our most welcoming organizations are our religious organizations. So there's a fine line, right? Um, and so I'm curious about meaning making and these organizations on our campuses, how we connect um, students and form these uh, centers of belonging, and maybe some of a little bit about what you're hoping to study. And then we're going to our final question. <laughs> no, I think you make a really important point. And, you know, to contextualize much of what we're talking about back to what it means to be August in higher education mm. is you have a lot of students coming to campus right now in the midst of a pandemic that are going to be together in residence halls and on campus and seeking to make sense of everything that has gone on and will go on into the future around COVID. And when we think about these questions and we talk about sense of belonging, there has been this massive shared trauma. And mm -hmm. so many of the groups you referenced and the discussions we're having around spiritual and secular and faith identities offer something to manage that. And I'm really interested to understand that is how do students utilize their identities to make sense of what's happening or are they? And what is that going to look like in about two or three weeks when they're having those awkward first conversations with folks that they don't know, or their RA is doing the first knock on the door, or they're at an activity fair and they're just walking by rows and rows and rows of tables. And I think there's this outstanding question of like, gosh, how do you make sense of that and make meaning of that, uh, you know, in the context of the world in which we're living? And that's why this conversation is so important, because it matters. It always has mattered. It matters at this very moment, and it matters for these future moments, because students are looking to us to facilitate those discussions and open the door for them to be able to talk about it. Yeah, thank you for, for bringing it back. I think that's one thing um, I always like to kind of think about who who is heard in the process, potentially. Um, so as we conclude every uh, episode on our podcast, we ask the question uh, focused on the name of our channel, which is Student Affairs Now. And I'd love to hear what each of you are pondering, questioning, troubling, kind of thinking about maybe related to this conversation or beyond um, as a result of our, of our time here today. So Jenny, I'm going to start with you. 
Um, yeah, I'm thinking about white Christian supremacy. <laughs> um, I think all the time. Um, it, I kind of have a one track mind. Um, so I am thinking about how, to, how are we getting our scholars and practitioners to understand it, to make strides again, sit on campus, you know, when they're framing their research questions about identity and belongingness, I want them to consider it. Um, and, you know, and how can we get people to think about religion through a critical lens, like people are, are more practice anyway, at, about thinking of, um, practice at thinking about race through a critical lens. I'd like to see people doing that with religion as well. Thank you. Amir. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, a lot um, related to what uh, Christopher was talking about, just the the reflection that is needed um, as related to the collective trauma that we've all experienced um, and particularly the more acute uh, experiences of, uh, of inequity that this pandemic has laid to bear. Um, and this um, kind of operating as if we have to go back to normal, whatever that is. And um, like, and we're just not supposed to act like this all just happened and that we're not still in it. And that, um, and I think um, religious and spiritual identity is a huge source of reflection for so many and source of identity and, 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 and also a component of how people experience inequity. So what does this conversation look like for our campuses going forward? Yeah, thank you so much. Christopher, final thoughts. There is a student right now who is petrified and afraid to move in and to start their education, and it surrounds all of this. And my thought goes back to what are we doing for those students? And what are we doing to frame and shape their experience in the next couple of weeks? Um, you know, I, I reflect back on this conversation that we've had, and there's just so much work to do. And I think of what that student is experiencing as they sit in their room and try to make sense of all these things we are talking about. And my heart goes out to them because so much of what the work we need to do is about that student with that experience and that fear that they're having. Yeah. Cody, final thought with you. Yeah, I'm thinking about the listener, the listener who has heard us talk today and, and, and has been thinking about this conversation, the, the person who has, has you know, snapped their fingers a few times and the person who feels somewhat implicated in the midst of this. And what I want to say back is that this is of the most complex issues in higher education today. It is one of the areas that has been the least talked about, and it is complex, and it is meant to trouble the waters, if you will, that we have had this conversation. And I think about, from a, from a Jewish lens, the rabbi often, the Jewish community often deals with the fact that there are 613 Torah laws, and the rabbi says, when asked, what do I do, and how do I actually practice this, and the rabbi says, pick one and get on the road. And I think about the ways in which there's so much here to do. But for those of you that are listening and you're like overwhelmed by this, my suggestion is find something and start on the road. And that will be the beginning of something that will transform the institution and transform your own experience of doing this that moves from deniability or moves from feelings of being implicated or moves from feelings of feeling overwhelmed and moves into a direction that allows us to actually have this conversation and move this policy policy agenda forward. Thank you to all four of you today. This was an absolutely fantastic and very timely conversation. Um, I am so grateful for your time and your contributions to the podcast. Um, also want to give a shout out uh, to our sponsors, EverFi and Leadership. So a little bit about each of them. Um, EverFi, how will your institution rise to reach today's socially conscious generation? These students rate commitments to safety, well-being, and inclusion as important as academics and extracurriculars. It is time to reimagine the work of student affairs as an investment, not an expense. For over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities with nine efficacy studies behind our courses. You will have the confidence that you are using the standard of care 
for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. So you can transform your institution and the community you serve and visit um, everfi.com slash student affairs now to learn more. Our other partner today is Leadership. Leadership partners with colleges and universities to create transformational leadership experiences, both virtual and in person for students and professionals with a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world. Leadership offers engaging learning experiences on courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more, please visit www.leadership.org slash virtual programs or connect with them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Again, huge shout out to our podcast behind the scenes superstar, Natalie Ambrosi, the production assistant, um, who will do all of the work to make us look and sound good and transcribe all of the words that our, our guests spoke today. Um, if you are listening and you're not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website and scroll um, to access our MailChimp login. So you can also check out all of our archives while you're, while you're there. Um, we are approaching the one-year anniversary of Student Affairs Now, and we have launched a contest. So subscribe to our newsletter to learn more about it in the coming weeks. Um, again, I'm Heather Shea. Thank you to the fabulous guests and to everybody who's watching and listening. Make it a great week, everyone.